Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast about books and films and everything in between. As long as it's YA, I guess we got it covered. <laughs> For the most part, <laughs> sure. Who are you? All right, I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. Excellent. So we have promised it. We have now decided to deliver on it. We are talking Dumplin' today. So excited to talk about this with you. But before we do that, we should do our news. Because I have yes. some news. Okay. Well, it's not really news. I have some olds. Um, <laughs> but this is going to air the week before Christmas-ish. And I just thought I'd throw a suggestion to folks if you're buying for a young adult in your life. I am a big fan of two comic series from Marvel that target mm. young people and especially young girls. The Ms. Marvel series and also the unbeatable Squirrel Girl. Yes. They're both fantastic, uplifting female protagonists. Ms. Marvel is, uh, she's Muslim and she's dealing with being like a brown teenager in Jersey City and also a superhero. And both of those <laughs> things are sometimes equally complicated for her. For fans of Dumplin', Unbeatable Squirrel Girl is like all about body positivity. And I bring them both up, A, because they're great Christmas gifts, but B, because there's a fantastic crossover YA comic that just came out. It's from the Marvel Rising line, which is almost all geared at, I mean, it is, it's geared at young people. So they've just done a collection that has a crossover between Squirrel Girl and Ms. Marvel. And it's fantastic. Some of it's from the perspective of the unbeatable Squirrel Girl and some from Ms. Marvel. It goes back and forth. It's funny and it will be a really great Christmas read. As near as I can figure, it's just titled Marvel Rising, which is kind of... Oh, that's not helpful at all. <laughs> it's not helpful at all. I'm looking at it now. I'm trying to find the subtitle, and there doesn't seem to be one. Um, but it's the Marvel Rising title that has Unbeatable Squirrel Girl and Ms. Marvel on the cover. And it's just a funny, warm, engaging read for over Christmas for anyone, but particularly for any teen girls in your life. Highly recommended from the perspective of being like a super diverse, inclusive, body positive, feminist, but also hilarious comic. So short and sweet this week, but that's my news for folks. And I will 100% co-sign on that. I've read both of those titles for several years now, and they're probably among the most enjoyable comics. And it's really exciting to hear that they they continue to tease the idea that they might be doing something with the Amazing Squirrel Girl Ugh. in a live action form. Would be so good. Yes, they actually talked about casting the actress who played Barb. Oh, I can only remember her first name now. Sorry, Barb from Stranger Things, oh, yeah, I think, has course. been campaigning to play her. And I think that would be an amazing role. She'd be fantastic. And to me, those are the two most consistently like entertaining, exciting titles coming out of Marvel right now, which is surprising because normally I actually don't like YA targeted comics. They have a tendency to be really like flat. Mm -hmm. um, but these are great. And this particular crossover involves Captain Marvel as well, who is Miss Marvel's hero and also my hero. Who's getting her own movie in January? No, March. <laughs> Yay, Brie Larson. So excited. So yeah, anyway, that's mine. Do you have news for us this week, Joe? I do. And actually, I'm going to keep it in the comic realm. So as of the date of this recording, it's brand spanking new. So it'll be about a week and a half out of date by the time people hear this. <laughs> but Netflix has finally dropped a trailer for the adaptation of a graphic novel series called The Umbrella Academy. Woohoo! 
And this is a really interesting looking property. It's set in the late 70s. It's based on the idea of a large number of unrelated people all giving birth to superpowered beings. And six of them get adopted by a wealthy gentleman who turns them into a team. And then he mysteriously dies and they come back together as a band of misfits, essentially. Nice. It's very odd. The art is very evocative. It's actually created and written by Gerard Way, and he is the lead singer of My Chemical Romance. Oh, seriously? Yeah, so it's a it's a very odd thing, but I think it was a passion project for him. The announcement that it was picked up to a television series was made ages ago, and then nothing, nothing, nothing. And all of a sudden, as is Netflix's way, they have randomly dropped a trailer. <laughs> so this will be out in mid-February, so I think we're going to cover it. I'm going to make you take a look at some superhero stuff. Never makes me sad. I'm excited for it. It'll be good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it looks promising. It's got Ellen Page, so we're all about the Canadian Yay! ladies. Ellen Page. Yeah. Never the wrong answer. A hundred percent. Cool. Okay, so let's get on to the main event. Dumpling! Dumpling! Joe, I know we're going to talk about, like, all the usual stuff, but I just have to ask right off the bat, did you love Dumplin' the book? Did you love it? Okay, so I I may have sent you a stream of different texts and tweets while I was reading this. <laughs> this has been my most enjoyable read since we began this podcast. I freaking loved this book so much. So, so, so much. Fun. Okay, now I'm going to be a professional podcaster and tell the folks what we're talking about. Um, <laughs> so Dumplin' is a 2015 novel from Julie Murphy, her second book, and it tells us the story of Willow Dean. Willow Dean is an overweight teenager who's just always been happy with who she is and her body. Um, she's had the influence of an aunt named Lucy who has taught her to be happy as the person she is, to not wait around for her life to start, but to just be herself. And that's who she is when we meet her, except that she's just lost Lucy. Lucy has passed away. And it's just Will and her mom in their house together. And Will's mom is not so much into the body positivity thing. In fact, Willowdean's mom is the president of the Miss Teen Blue Bonnet pageant and an ex-beauty queen. She's not the most motherly. She's not the most motherly in the world. But at the same time as Willowdean is dealing with the loss of her aunt, who was this really important and very positive influence in her life, she's also dealing with her romantic interest in a boy named Bo, who works at the same fast food restaurant that she does. These two factors together, the loss of Lucy and this budding romantic interest in Bo, has an impact on her self-image. And when she's kissing Bo, he sort of puts a hand on her back. And for the first time, she feels... Self-conscious. Yeah, self-conscious. And like the body that she's in is not the right body for what she wants to do or be and so she suddenly like she suddenly has these conflicting feelings about her body that she's actually never really experienced before like she's never really felt less than and um she's got to come to terms with this sense of this immediate reaction that she has that's so different from the person who she wants to be so what does she do so she enters her mom's beauty pageant <laughs> and naturally she, naturally and 
She does so with the support of her best friend, Ellen. Ellen is skinny and pretty and sort of traditionally what the town expects in a beauty queen and Willowdean is not. And Ellen enters the beauty pageant as well. And Willowdean doesn't deal with that very well. She immediately challenges Elle and it leads to a rift in their friendship. And so at the same time as she's doing this huge thing and dealing with all these emotions, she's also just lost her best friend. So the novel is really about Willow Dean navigating all of this stuff, as well as like another romantic subplot with a boy who maybe is more like the kind of boy people would expect her to date. Bo is very, very handsome, and she's very self-conscious about the idea of how people would look at them together as a couple, whereas Mitch is maybe a little bit more her body type and a little bit more the kind of guy people would expect her to be with, but she has no sparks with him. All of it culminates, obviously, in the beauty pageant, which I think I imagine we'll talk about at length. Joe, as I'm outlining the plot, I'm realizing just how much goes on in this book. It's a lot. As you were going through it, I was like, oh, right. Yeah, that's, oh, yeah, that's, oh, that's so much. But yep. <laughs> the way that it's written, it doesn't feel overwhelming. No. and life-shattering it's just kind of like oh and I'm still dealing with this or like oh wow that's a challenge like everything just rolls off of her in such a way that I think it's almost surprising how much she's actually processing and going through it's true because I haven't even talked about the manic pixie drag queens yet (laughs) (laughs) um one of the important plot lines in the text is that Willow Dean finds out that a group of people who her her aunt Lucy actually got a lot of support from were a group of drag queens who impersonate Dolly Parton at a local bar, and Willow Dean recruits them to help her and her band of misfit toys, the other girls who enter the pageant with her, to sort of embrace start a the revolution. beauty queen. Yeah, start a revolution. Embrace the beauty queen within themselves. So yeah, there's all that going on as well. There's a lot going on. Anyway, one of the things I like best about the book is, for a number of reasons that I'm sure we'll get into, Willow Dean ends up disqualified from the pageant, and she just walks away from the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And we never actually in the book find out who won. Because it doesn't matter. Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Except that Millie, who is another fat girl who joins the pageant with her, comes in second runner-up in the book. And Joe, I don't know if you know about this, but there's a second book set in this universe. You did mention it in one of the earlier news updates. Puddin. It's called Puddin. And it's a book about the friendship between Millie and Callie. Which was surprising to me. That's not the other character I thought would be in that book. No, totally. So Callie is a bit of a mean girl in the book who Ellen seeks sort of solace in the friendship, in a friendship with Callie when her friendship with Willow Dean disintegrates and Callie takes a great deal of joy in. Antagonizing. Yeah, antagonizing and sort of making Willow Dean feel like she had been ruining Ellen's life by being her friend, holding her back, by making her be sort of part of this outsider crew when really Ellen has everything to make herself popular if she wanted to be. Mm -hmm. I think I've covered the plot. There's a lot of plot. (laughs) There is, yes. But it all flows nicely. It really does. And one of the things that I like about it is Willoudin has a full life. You know, like oftentimes when you've got a YA novel that has a romantic subplot, it takes over. But in this book, Her love pseudo-triangle with Bo and Mitch is an important part of her development, but it's not more important than her friendship with Ellen, her 
grief over Lucy, her attempt to reconcile a relationship with her mother, and the beauty pageant. Like, those things are all really important aspects of her life as well. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the nice things about this book is especially as a book about a fat girl who wants to get the opportunity to be herself, Julie Murphy does a really good job of giving her a full, real life that doesn't always revolve around issues of her body. Yeah, I think one of the things that I appreciated the most was how prevalent her job is in the book. It seems like such a weird detail, but her work has a character. It's not just, you know, she goes to work and there's Beau. It's like she's she's going to work. She talks about the ups and downs of slow periods. Mm -hmm. At one point when she can't handle being around Beau because the feelings are just too overwhelming and she doesn't want to process it, she ends up getting a job at a competing fast food joint. And, you know, it's... (laughs) It's all like a nice undercurrent, but it, I think it continually reinforces the fact that she's not just a girl sitting in her room pining over a boy. She's on the go. Like, she's busy all the time. She is busy all the time. And, you know, if you think back to the jobs that you had in high school, they were often, for me anyway, all, all, all encompassing, right? There would be so much going on and whatever the drama was in that world took on so much importance because... You don't have that much else to compare it to, right? Like your first job is often, you know, full of those kinds of dramas. And so I really appreciate it. I like what you said about the workplace being a character. It really is. And I think by extension, the entire town uh, has a nice charm to it. So this is a book that's set in Texas. South Texas. And it's very much a flavor. You know, manners are an issue. Julie Murphy loves to talk about the the hairstyles. But I think one of the things that really resonated with me as a fan of TV shows like Friday Night Lights is this idea that there is a particular culture. Mm -hmm. The men play football. And if you're good at it, that can be your escape from a small town. Mm -hmm. And sadly, in contrast, or perhaps celebratory, we probably shouldn't pass judgment, Mm -hmm. Uh, for the women, it's this beauty pageant. And you can maybe use that as a springboard to launch yourself into something bigger. You know, I think they mentioned that many of the women in town have gone on to become successful businesswomen, or I think they even say the mayor was a former winner of the pageant. The mayor and like one of the doctors. And I think one of the through lines is this idea that you can be in a pageant and it can be part of you, or you can be in a pageant and it can be everything. And the Mm -hmm. women for whom the pageant is everything, like Willa Dean's mom, they don't fare so well after the pageant is over right? Like, yeah, one of the things that we get a real flavor of in the book is the way Willow Dean's mom's self-worth is really wrapped up in her role in the town as the lead beauty queen, right? Mm -hmm. And like, and she is the pageant, like, she is synonymous with the pageant. And she has to fit into her dress, the dress she wore as a teenage girl, she has to fit into it every year for the pageant. Mm -hmm. And their lives from the middle of summer on revolve around ensuring that Willardine's mom will fit into this dress. So like, dieting is a whole thing. Her mom is like obsessed with Pilates, right? And like spin class and keeping her weight down. And there's this incredibly important emotional moment in the book when Willow Dean is called to zip her mom into the dress on the night of the pageant. And it's not going to zip up. 
<laughs> it's just not going to zip up. And Willow Dean sort of rescues her mom with this set of alligator clips from the lighting department. <laughs> it's basically like, <laughs> mom, you just can't turn around. And there's this moment in there that is a reciprocal moment where Willow Dean recognizes how important this is to her mother and enables her to sort of save face at the same time as her mom needs Willow Dean and has to recognize that she's this resourceful, interesting, alive kid outside of any constructs of beauty that her mom wishes she matched or fit into. Mm-hmm. And it's a nicely underplayed moment. I mean, I was intrigued because I once again made the mistake of reading part of the book and then watching the movie and then finishing up the book. You gotta stop doing that. I gotta stop doing that. <laughs> but it was intriguing to see how they, how the not reconciliation, but that that begrudging moment of respect and acknowledgement and love mm-hmm. between mother and daughter, it's almost underplayed in the book. Like it's very yeah. casual. It comes together yeah. in a nice moment, but it's still just a it's a quick moment. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like there's an orchestra playing <laughs> the moment for full effect. And I think part of it is because it's so well structured throughout the book that you're constantly seeing that little push and pull where if only they could just meet a little bit closer, yeah. you know, there's the moment where Willow Dean is, is frequently having breakdowns because her mom is trying to pack up Lucy's room and mm-hmm. Willow Dean isn't ready to say goodbye to her and she's associating all of Lucy's material goods as a stand-in for this absent mother figure. And of course, her mother is like, we've got this room and we need to use it. You know, I need to make money because we don't have as much income. So I need to use this space in order to do pageant related activities that will continue to get us income. Mm-hmm. What I liked was that there's this one moment where Willa Dean comes in, she sees her mom packing up the room, she has a breakdown. And it seems like her mom is going to go and hug her. And then her mom just mm-hmm. pats her on the back. And yeah. Out. And you can see it like you, you can tell and you invest so deeply in these moments where you you know that they love each other, but they've for so long had a mediator in between to help negotiate that relationship that they're now trying to struggle their way through by saying like, you know, I love you, but I don't know how to express it. Yeah, exactly. And there's the extent to which Lucy was obviously the figure who explained each woman to the other, you know, Mm -hmm. and that now that she's gone, they're just sort of, they're just sort of flailing without this anchor, this like really important anchor in their relationship. Yeah. I think the other thing that comes up for me a lot, I guess if we're thinking a little more thematically or metaphorically, is the function of clothing, Mm. which I think is, it's one of these things where when we were talking about To All the Boys I've Loved before, we made a concerted effort to talk about issues of representation. And Mm -hmm. I think we can't talk about this book without acknowledging the fact that this is a really significant, important book for a lot of people because it is unabashedly fat positive. And I do want to highlight the fact that I was doing some very preliminary shallow research and that term fat positive made me uncomfortable. But Mm -hmm. in looking around, that seems to be the preferred nomenclature. So people would prefer not to be called overweight. They would prefer not to be called obese. They prefer either fat positive or fat as their designated term. And that's one of the moments in the book that really resonated for me was when somebody tells Willoughby, I never thought of you as fat. And she's like, I'm not sure why that's supposed to be a compliment. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. who I am. It's part of how I navigate the world. It's part of how I am seen. And if you tell me that you don't see that about me, you're erasing part of my identity, but you're also framing it as a negative, right? Mm-hmm. If you if you decide that in order to love me, you don't see me as fat, then you're changing who I am 
in order to love me. And I don't get to be my whole self in all of its glories and complications if you just erase and don't want to discuss that part of me, right? Yeah. There's another moment when we realize in the book that one of the reasons why Willadine's mom has sort of grudgingly supported this is that she thought that it might be a springboard to weight loss for her daughter. Mm -hmm. And they have this moment where it's clear that the dress that she's helping Willadine make is going to be too tight. And she thought that Will would have lost enough weight that it wouldn't have been. And Will has this moment where she finally directly says to her mother, if you look at me and you see me in this dress and you only feel disappointed, I'm sorry for you. Because yeah, that's your I problem. See, that's your problem. I see me in this dress and I think I've never owned anything that looked this beautiful. There are all these moments where over the course of the novel where Will is so beautifully articulate in her experience of life in her own body. And I think mm -hmm. that's what is so empowering and beautiful and groundbreaking about this novel. And the writing is such that even if that doesn't relate to the way that you live your life, it's so compelling. And so like her voice is so dynamic. It's by far my favorite voice, this, this that we've done so far. Yeah, I was maybe five pages in and I could literally envision her mm -hmm. and she was just so vivacious and full of life. I loved her immediately and it honestly, even though there were things that didn't quite work for me in the book, it really smoothed out a lot of the things that I think in a, in a more poorly written book, I would have been very frustrated with. Yeah, definitely. I think even when Julie Murphy is using the tropes of the genre, like the sort of kind of love triangle, or the will they won't they between her and Bo, mm -hmm. or the sort of frenemy relationship. And like, even when she's using pieces that we know are so, you know, visited, there's something about the honesty and life with which Willowdean is written that I forgive it all immediately because I just want to spend time with this character. Yeah. And actually, I I do. So I 100% agree with you. But I do want to raise one thing that I absolutely loved that I felt was unique to this particular book with regard to the mm. love triangle. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that was the fact that it's, I think, what, two chapters in and Bo is immediately identified as a love interest, and they're already making out. <laughs> and I freaking loved it because I was like, <laughs> let's just do away with all the BS and yeah, let's get to the heavy petting. And because even that, it's it's an <laughs> you, acknowledgement you that it's so creepy. <laughs> it sounds creepy, but it, to me, it, it diminishes that frustrating cliche of, oh, you know, and to a certain extent, the relationship still follows that through line that we've come to expect the will they want they and the conflicts and the misunderstandings. But it doesn't do it in the same way, because you know that there's that genuine spark. So it's not mm -hmm. about the process of discovery. It's actually entirely about Willardine coming to acceptance that she can do this and she can follow through on what she wants. But Bo is the right guy from the end of Chapter two. And what I think is nice about that too is Willadine's entirely in the driver's seat of that triangle. Like Bo is all in. Mm -hmm. And it's not like most of these books where you're inside the young woman's head and she's constantly like wondering and second guessing and hoping. We know as readers, we know that Bo is all in and that it's all about Will's 
sense of herself Mm -hmm. and her ability to get past what other people will think of their relationship, that's what's stopping her. It has nothing to do with Bo. No. (laughs) We all know Bo wants the relationship. No, and even the subplot with Mitch, which is, to me, probably the thing that didn't work quite as well. Um, Mm. If only because it made me like Willow Dean just a little bit less because I felt like she was being so unfair to him. Well, she... She is, right? And that's, I liked it because it lent a complexity to her character. Because you're right. That is like she's She's not doing the right thing there and she knows it. She's trying to make a relationship work with the boy who will be more socially acceptable so that she doesn't have to deal with reality. Mm-hmm. And also, I think, so that she doesn't have to deal with real feelings, right? Which are scary. Yeah. And the last time she really, really loved somebody, that somebody died. Yeah. Right? So this idea of kind of keeping the world at arm's distance so that she won't get hurt. But yeah, you're right. I mean, she she treats Mitch terribly because that boy is also all in. Yeah. And his mom. His mom is also all in. I know, which is so adorable. <laughs> and the rational part of me agrees with you. This helps to make her more of a well-rounded character. She's three-dimensional because she's not perfect. She is mm-hmm. making mistakes. And it's the same with her disagreement with Elle, where you know she's in the wrong right from the beginning, but it's about yeah. her coming to grips with it and being able to apologize or in the case of Mitch being able to say yeah you know what I messed up and it was bad of me to do that to you but then the romantic part of me (laughs) the the selfish (laughs) impulsive YA reader in me is like why have I been so mean to this boy (laughs) oh Willow Dean (laughs) yeah you said no southern accents oh no I said no southern accents for you I can pull it off (laughs) I can't pull it off (laughs) Is this a good time to switch gears and talk about the film? Yeah, let's let's get into it because this one surprised me. It's got things that do and don't work. So here's the trailer for the 2018 Netflix adaptation that just came out a couple weeks ago. I know how I'm going to survive my mom's pageant season. She already started her diet. Oh, right. Jumping the other side. Oh. Okay, darling, just grab my ankles. Uh-huh. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. My name is Wildane Dixon. Hey, Wildane. Hi, Tumble out of bed and stumble to the kitchen. Most people call me Will, except for my mom, who calls me... Dumplin', I can't be late. This cannot exactly drive itself. Being a bit of a celebrity around here meant that she was too busy for me. You've got a hole in your left, by the way. <gasps> what? Oh, she didn't listen to me. This must be your daughter. That's my daughter's best friend. This is my daughter, Willoughby. Wow. Okay. And that's when I decided enough was enough. I know that look. What's going on? I think I'm going to sign up for the pageant. Okay. So Dumplin' the Movie is directed by Anne Fletcher, and it's from a screenplay by Kristen Hahn. So we're back into Double the Ladies, Double the Pleasure. Sisters are doing it for themselves. And I think they do a good job. I didn't mean to sound so hesitant when I said that. It's only because I'm still trying to reconcile with some of the creative choices that they made and how they adapted this, because Mm -hmm. this is not as straightforward an adaptation as I expected going in. No, it's really not. And it wasn't until I started articulating the plot for the podcast that I realized why they had to cut so much stuff out. Yeah, there's just too much stuff. And we've talked, or I feel like I've belabored the point many times that at the end of the day, an adaptation has to make some of these decisions to say, 
we are an hour and 40 minute movie. We do not have time to include all of these plots. Now, with that said, there are some very distinctive decisions that have been made. And I want to start off with, to me, one of the most interesting choices, which is the expansion of the manic pixie drag queen aspect. How did that work for you? Um, It's interesting because I loved them in the film. And I do think that they get a little bit of short shrift in the book, Mm -hmm. just because we never really know them as people. Like, we have names, and we know vaguely that they connected with Lucy. They are fairy godmothers. They are fairy godmothers. They are fairy godmothers in the book, and they become manic pixie dream drag queens in in the movie. Yeah. My issue with them, and I still can't decide if I liked or didn't like it because I liked them so much, but they're really a replacement for any deep engagement with who Lucy was as a person. Mm-hmm. So we learn a lot more about Lucy in the book. And also in the book, and I think it's really important, by the end of her life, Lucy is effectively couchbound with health complications. And Willadine's mother is adamant that this is all related to her weight. So she has a whole bunch of anxiety about Willadine's weight wrapped up in mm-hmm. the end of Lucy's life. And in the book, Lucy has given up opportunities to engage with the world. And the lesson that she teaches Will is not to wait, not to wait until the society believes that she is right, but to live her life now. But she teaches her that because she didn't do it. Whereas in the film, we never see that version of Lucy. Mm -mm. We see a vibrant, full of life, engaged Lucy who's sort of been struck down too early without any engagement with those really complex notions of sort of selfhood and shame and engagement with the world. So in many ways, the drag queens replace that conversation in the film. Mm -hmm. And they do it. It's much more visual and it's much more cinematographic. (laughs) Cinematic? (laughs) That's the word. It's much more cinematic. But I don't know if that, to me, it does not have the emotional depth. Yeah, we were talking about this very briefly before we actually started recording. And I think part of it is if we hadn't read the book, we probably wouldn't even have an issue with it. No. Um, Because the way that the film is constructed is such that the initial scene is almost the same. They go to a drag bar in search of answers about Lucy, but also to maybe get some inspiration. And as a result of that, they end up being introduced to the drag queens. And then the movie takes it as, okay, we don't know how to outfit costumes. We don't know how to walk in heels. We don't know how to style and do the pageant walk and talk. So they end up becoming coaches in, mm-hmm. of course, a cinematic montage. A great montage. Yeah, it's, it's lots of fun. I think it adds a certain amount of levity to the film. I often got the impression in the book that Julie Murphy doesn't care too much about the pageant. Yeah. It often seems to be taking place in the background. You're not even really certain how much time has passed or how much preparation they've done. Totally. And our protagonist literally walks away from it before we find out who wins. And Julie Murphy doesn't even give us an epilogue. We're like, P.S. Becca totes one. Nothing. Well, because Becca's not a character really in the book either. So No, for sure. So the movie essentially uses these characters 
to fill in some of the gaps that by reducing the size of the cast, I think mm-hmm. they they also more organically weave it in. And also rightfully, they introduce some of the comedy elements. So the moment that you mentioned where Willow Dean has to help her mom with the dress in this one, she is rescued by the drag queen who then gets to outfit Jennifer Aniston, who is playing Rosie. She then gets to come out in the most ridiculously hilarious drag dress that you've ever seen. <laughs> Which is a great moment that kind of cuts Rosie down to size. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jennifer Aniston, by the way, I think is a revelation in this role. I was so delighted with her performance. So I had only just heard of the book because you had mentioned it for the podcast. And then when I watched the trailer, there's Jennifer Aniston. Was she who you envisioned when you were reading the book? No, not at all. Like, not at all. I pictured... Honestly, I pictured a woman who was past her sell-by date more than Jennifer Aniston is. Mm-hmm. Like, I pictured a woman for whom this annual beauty pageant is her moment. Don't forget in the book, we're told frequently about all the men that she has dated who have not formed long-term attachments with her, right? Like, yeah. there's this constant through line, like, oh, yeah, my mom dated that guy for, like, two weeks. We don't get any of that in the film. We don't even really get the sense, I don't think, that Rosie is unhappy in her work in the film, whereas we do in the book. Like, Rosie doesn't love her job. She works in an old folks home. She's an orderly. She's not She's not particularly content with the hand that life has given her. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we get that sense in the film at all because it's Jennifer Aniston. Yeah, she <laughs> just seems I mean? overworked. She just seems overworked and tired. But, like, there's also something about the fact that in the book, Rosie works through the book to become likable, right? Like it really takes until the scene where they're making costumes together, the Cadillac costume in particular, for us to see the guard come down and for us to find love for Rosie. Whereas Jennifer Aniston is instantly likable the second you lay eyes on her. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that changes the dynamic for sure. But I still loved her in the role. I love her as a mom. I don't know. I just do. Yeah, it was fun. It was interesting to me because that was one of the other big things that stood out to me. I think it makes sense to prioritize the relationship between Willow Dean and her mom because it really does bring to the fore a lot of her insecurities. It tells you more about the relationship that the town has to the pageant. And it's kind of like a quick and easy way to convey a lot of information. But Mm -hmm. also, it just makes sense if you're going to pay for Jennifer Aniston, you're going to use her a little bit more. Right, of course. Now, the other big thing that changed for me is that the movie actually really de-emphasizes the romance, which is kind of the inverse to what we experienced with To All the Boys I've Loved Before. Yes, it's true. And I actually really appreciated it, although I noticed that I looked up sort of Twitter response in the last few days since the movie just dropped this weekend uh, at the time of this recording and it's mostly just uh complaints that there's not enough luke benward in the movie he's only in about four seeds i guess that guy looks like he's probably 28 years old (laughs) i know know. in my first thought when he opens the back door and she's like hi bo i'm like who is that old man you were talking to call to catch a predator (laughs) and he's fine in the role but he's he's really not in it (laughs) No, he's super charming, but he's in four scenes. I think they simplify his role a lot too. So in the book, he's a complex character in his own right. He's a poor kid who has been attending a really fancy private school on the back of a baseball scholarship. He's lost this. Oh, sorry. You know, sport. Um, He's lost (laughs) the scholarship. 
Swear Paul. He's lost the scholarship and his kid brother's pissed at him because it means that they both have to go to the public school instead. Which is one of the reasons why Willardine ends up going into the pageant in the first place because she can't handle seeing Bo in both of her facets of life. Yeah, she needs a space where he's not. Um, and I think... I just, he's a much more interesting character in the book because he, he's a character in the book. <laughs> um, and one of the things that he's dealing with is it's never that he intends to keep his relationship with Willadine a secret so much as he's sort of hiding from the whole town. But Willadine misconstrues the way he is with her at the beginning and thinks that like it's shame on his part. I don't know. There's just so much more complexity and nuance that pushes her towards Mitch, someone who's not going to be sort of secret, but it's never about Willow Dean in the first place, which honestly is one of the lessons that she learns throughout the book. Like, it's not always about you, right? Like, mm -hmm. she has to learn it in relation to Ellen. She has to learn it in relation to Bo. Yeah, and then the relationship with Ellen is also different here. So the breaking point is more or less the same. She doesn't want Ellen to enter the pageant but then in the movie that was actually one of the scenes that i flagged as being the least successful of the entire film because they're fine they're fine and then all of a sudden it's like <laughs> you learn these dance moves we're fighting we're never yeah. speaking again and you're just like uh what <laughs> yeah and the feud also doesn't last very long in the arc of the film compared to how it does in the book like the feud is a majority of the book mm -hmm. whereas in the film it's like i don't know like a half hour of the film that they're actually fighting which felt really weird to me too and also, as a result of the focus on the relationship with Willadine and her mom in the film, we just lose the context and importance of the friendship. Yeah. Because we're so busy focusing on what's going on with Rosie and Willadine. Yeah. I do think it's worth mentioning, for a film that is actually really interested in representation, I didn't like what they did with Hannah's character. Yeah, that was interesting. They both whitewash Hannah's character. So she's Afro-Latina in the book, mm -hmm. and she's white in the film. They also... Straight washing is probably too strong a word because it's alluded to that her girlfriend walks her across the stage and she's, you know, she has this sort of down with the heteropatriarchy line, mm -hmm. but... It's very understated. It's very coded. Yeah, whereas in the book, we've got a whole arc with Millie's character growth of like learning that gay people aren't scary like her church told her, right? That never makes it into the film. I mean, and for obvious reasons, but... It's a shame that a film that is so interested in the representation of body positivity erases what I think is maybe not always successful, but an interesting attempt to make that friend group and the pageant itself a little bit more diverse and inclusive. It's tricky because it's hard to belabor a text for not doing everything because mm. you could throw everything in and have it not work. Totally. So while... Yeah. I mean, I applaud the book because I think the book was actually going to greater lengths to be more inclusive. Definitely. And I think in this case, the film was, I don't want to apologize for it, but I think it was making some semi-savvy decisions. I mean, they they even cut out one of the characters, so. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, and that's another thing, right, that we haven't talked about at all is that the book deals, in addition to everything else it's doing, it's also dealing with ableism in the character of Hannah and how she's addressed and represent or sorry amanda yeah. uh and how she's addressed and represented which doesn't make it into the film because that character is cut completely mm -hmm. i don't know i guess my problem with hannah is that she goes from being a character who in the book basically has every hurdle to cross right so she's not traditionally beautiful she's got this tooth issue that all the kids at school mock her mercilessly for and her family doesn't have the money for braces so she's dealing with that she's as i said afro-latina and she's 
semi-openly gay in a town where the only other gay characters are the drag queens. Oh, they're not in town though, remember? They're like hours away. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. So there's all this... There's all this complexity in that one character, and she really gets reduced in the film down to an angry, sort of dykey character, but we're not actually going to let her be a lesbian. Mm -hmm. It's just interesting. I know, and I know a film can't do everything, but for a film that is so careful in representation in some ways, we lose a lot of the nuance that's in the book for obvious reasons. But I'm thinking also about the fact that like the engagement with fat positivity is toned down in the movies. So like, for example, there's a scene where when Ellen and, and Willow Dean are having their friend fight, Ellen says to Willow Dean, I never thought of you as fat. And she says it as a compliment and it is taken within the context of the film uncritically. Mm -hmm. Whereas it's that line from a different character in the book spurs one of Willow Dean's most sort of powerful assertions of her selfhood, you know? Willow Dean is fat. Millie in the book is fatter, right? Mm -hmm. And she's not in the film. And Lucy in the film is fatter and deals with all sorts of other levels of social rejection as a result of that, that the film doesn't address. And I know the film, as I said, I know the film can't do everything, but this is a film about that positivity mm -hmm. that ultimately pulls some of the most important punches from the book. Yeah, I think at times it feels like they are channeling the spirit of the book and maybe dialing down some of the messaging in order to make a bit more of a feel-good family comedy, if that seems fair. No, I think so. And I think I think they're shying away from doing some of the hard work. For obvious reasons, it's an hour and 40 minute Netflix film. Mm -hmm. Like, I get that it can't be everything that the book is. But I really hope that folks who have checked out the film version and enjoyed seeing, you know, a diverse body cast on screen will pick up the book and read what Julie Murphy's doing, which is far more complex and far more radical in terms of the way that Julie Murphy wants to re-envision the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. Before we come to a close, do you want to briefly chat about the visual representation or the way that the pageant unfolds on screen? Because really, I just want you to tell me, did you cry when Millie, <laughs> when Millie came out there and she was just looking so good and people were like gagging for it because <laughs> I was fine. And then suddenly I was kind of bawling. <laughs> I did not cry during this movie, and I realized reading the reviews online that I am like... Oh, so you're dead inside. One, I must be dead inside. I also, uh, full disclosure, watched this at like three in the morning after the baby woke me up and I couldn't get back to sleep. <laughs> so I'm not sure. You know, I watched it on my iPad mini hanging over the side of my bed trying not to wake up my family like movies are meant to be watched. Yes, that's. <laughs> I think that's the preferred way that people encourage you to consume media now. <laughs> so, I mean, that might have had something to do with it. But I did find the pageant surprisingly moving because in the book, I don't because you're not supposed to, right? Like, mm -hmm. I don't think you're supposed to invest emotionally in the pageant because it's... It's what's happening it's, behind the scenes, essentially. Yes, it's what's happening behind the much more important moments of growth that we've already elucidated. So I was surprised that I did find the pageant moving. I also love how low budget the pageant is. Like... It's easy in the book because it's so central to the experience of 
living in that town, it's easy to forget that it is a small town pageant. And when you see the film version with like the cheap streamers as the backdrop Mm -hmm. and the sort of wonky set that's like kind of tilting over at some scenes, that you realize that this thing that is so important to Rosie's conception of herself is ultimately nothing, right? And that comes across very well in the film. I'm fascinated that you say that because I don't think it's meant to look cheap. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) So now I kind of want to look around and see if other people are saying the same thing. (laughs) No, no, I don't know. (laughs) I just, I'm thinking of that first set, the Texas-themed set, Mm -hmm. and like, the Texas is on an angle, like it's not centered on the backdrop. And like, the streamers are sort of patchy and, huh, well, well, that's what I saw. Perhaps it's because I have very evocative memories of another cinematic representation of a small town beauty pageant. So maybe in my head, I was getting lost in the comparisons to Drop Dead Gorgeous, which is not appropriate for this particular podcast. A, because it's not an adaptation, and B, because it's one of the most hilariously profane and offensive teen comedies you could ever watch. But if you're in the mood for something that will push all of your PC buttons, I can't recommend it enough. It's Stollers, Kirsten Dunst, Kirstie Alley, a bunch of people from Mad TV, but it's hilarious. It's essentially about how cutthroat a small town beauty pageant can get. Oh, Amy Adams is in it too. Interesting. I do like Amy Adams. I've not seen it, so I'm not helpful. I'm not sure how it would resonate with you. (laughs) Is what I'm saying. (laughs) Okay, so why don't we close this down? Sure. Out of curiosity, do you have any other texts that you would encourage people to check out if they enjoyed Dumplin'? Uh, I would say read everything else Julie Murphy has written because it's all wonderful. This is her second book. Her third book, Ramona Blue, I've talked about on the podcast before, deals with bisexuality. And obviously we've talked about putting off the top. Read everything Julie Murphy writes. Um, It's not YA, but a nonfiction memoir that folks who read this and are interested in issues of body positivity might like to check out. It's by Jess Baker. It's called Land Whale. And the subtitle is On Turning Insults into Nicknames and Why Body Image is Hard and How Diet can kiss my ass Um, which is a fantastic discussion of actually a lot of the issues that julie murphy touches on in this book and in puddin but in a nonfiction context and it's hilarious it's really really funny but also deeply moving oh oh, okay uh we'll link to that in the show notes awesome i have a ya bingo before we go oh yes hit me with that ya bingo bingo not a good bingo It's our first one, but I'm sure it won't be our last. Author cameo. Yes. Did you catch it? I did, but only because I had looked at pictures of Julie Murphy before I watched the movie. (laughs) Yes. So if you haven't seen what Julie Murphy looks like in the very last scene when they're all grooving at the Dolly Parton drag show at the end, Julie Murphy is the dark haired woman dancing at the table with with the cast. Mm -hmm. That's very fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm going to go with Frenemies. Oh, Frenemies is a good one. And sadly, I think one that'll continue to recur. (laughs) Yes, unfortunately. And probably my favorite use of the trope is in this book. So it's all downhill from here. Yeah, because there's some pretty bad ones. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I feel like there's a bunch of other things that we could talk about, but should probably look to wrap it up. So what are we doing next? Next week is a little special episode. You can tune in on Christmas Day to hear us talk about young adult Christmases. Our favorites. Mm -hmm. And we're strictly non-denominational. So we do have some options for the non-religious-y people and the non-Christmas-y people. That's true. Because we're both wildly non-religiously. Religious-y. Whatever. Fair. Yeah. (laughs) 
Okay. Okay. So if you want to chat with us about Dumplin' because you just saw it and you loved it and you want to tell us that we got everything right or wrong, you can find us on the social medias, uh, hashtag HKHSpod. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes too. Joe, if people are looking for you, where can they find you? So on Twitter, you can reach me at B Stole My Remote. That's the letter B, Stole My Remote. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. <laughs> All right. So until our holiday festive special. I'll see you on the page. And I'll see you on the screen.